1: Yes, it is. And welcome back. Friday, January 21st, 2022. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Thus opened the novel Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. That's a line in a book one Charlie Saunas would have known for two reasons. One, he maintained one of the happiest families and households I've ever known. And two, he was an English teacher at Central High School here in Phoenix. I never went to Central, but because Charlie's sons were my best friends, whenever I ran into someone who went to Central, be it in the 1970s or if they were there in the 1980s or 1990s, wherever, whenever, I'd always ask, do you remember a Mr. Saunas? His sons are some of my best friends. And every time I would ask that question, inevitably, the answers were always one of two. One, yes, I loved him, or two, No, but I knew of him. He was the teacher about whom students would say, Oh, I hope I get Mr. Saunas, or, Oh, you're lucky you got Mr. Saunas. That's how you got teachers in those days, by lottery. And if your ticket had Saunas on it, you were a lottery winner. His sons were and are some of my best friends, and anyone they brought to their home was made to feel as if they were also one of Charlie and Kathy's sons, too. And everyone who knew or knows Thano and Dimitri, whose music you often hear on this show, as well as their voices, everyone who knew or knows them always wanted to go to the Saunas house growing up. This was especially true in high school, and it was especially true for me. It was a happy house because it was, it is a happy home. And in proof of Newton's laws of physics, one sees again that from Charlie to Dimitri and Thano, apples do not fall far from the tree at all. I'm not sure if you were like me, but even among the best of our own, there's always a time or many a time you want to get away from your own home, especially in high school and go to another home, marinate there, soak up their household, their warmth, their fun, their food, their liberty. It's always more liberating somewhere else, isn't it? The Saunas house was that house for me as it was for so many others. And this because of the great warmth, kindness and fun Charlie and Kathy imbued their entire home with. How many people considered Charlie a surrogate father would be indeterminable because incalculable, because seemingly infinite. If you told someone who knew Charlie, he's like a surrogate dad to me, it was odd how many others would say, me too. The Saunas house for so many young men was its own city of refuge, a place of escape. Fighting with your parents? Go to the Saunas's. Not sure how to deliver certain news or ask a special thing of your parents? Ask Charlie how to do it. Heartbreak? Ask Dimitri or Thano to write a song for you, but while they are doing that, go talk to Charlie. Charlie was comfort, as was the Sauna's home, as it is still. Small story I'll never forget. Some homes are a little more strict than others, or maybe some parents are just a little more old-fashioned, perhaps. Dimitri and Thano wanted to... Take me on a camping trip once. I would have been about 16. It would have been just us boys, no parental supervision. My parents weren't so sure about all this. Bright idea on my part. Why don't you invite Mr. and Mrs. Saunas over for dinner, get to know them a bit better anyway? In my own mind, the idea was if my parents knew their parents, Kathy and Charlie would prove calming a solve, and my folks would see all would be fine being alone camping with these parents' kids. My parents did, Charlie and Kathy did, and we did. A word about Thano and Dimitri. They are musicians par excellence, as good as any of the greats, and more so than many have heard of, in most cases even better. Charlie and Kathy encouraged that musicality, and in their home allowed the boys to take over about two-thirds of their backyard to build a recording studio. The kids to Charlie and Kathy were everything. And they were, are, good kids. They are now the best of adults. Charlie was more than a father and a teacher, though. He was an instructor in life by how he lived as much by how he talked and laughed. Maybe it was his Greek heritage that imbued in him the lessons from Aristotle that the best way to teach is by example. Charlie's example was large, as was Charlie. Life was in him, and it exuded from him and to everyone around him. Life was on his face. Life was seen in his flailing arms when he spoke, always. And yes, life was sure in his midriff. Charlie didn't just talk with his throat and tongue. He talked with those always moving arms. Charlie didn't just eat with his tongue and stunk. He ate with gusto, which is as much a Greek word as it is an Italian one. Of course, he would have taught Walden Pond at Central High School in his classroom, but also in his home and on his travels. How did David Thoreau put it? Quote, I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation until it was quite necessary. I wanted to to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life as to put to rout all that was not life. And to cut a broad swath and shave close to drive life into a corner, quote. When he told a story or a joke, the arms operating separately but just as actively as the lips, he would end it with a smile. And if the punchline didn't move you, he would growl in kind of a certain way that kind of extended the sentence in that punchline, communicating in an ironically sotto voce intimation, OK, then laugh at me. He didn't care if the joke didn't land. He wanted you to laugh. And if it was at him, no problem. He made you laugh and your life was made a little happier, as was his. He loved to dance and he loved to travel. He loved his grandchildren, but he loved everyone. It's an odd thing that didn't occur to me until I thought about it this week. But I've actually never heard Charlie say anything bad about anyone He just either didn't have those vibrations in his soul or he didn't see the point of expressing such thoughts. It's pretty rare, and I struggle even now to think of anyone else I know like that, excepting his wife, perhaps Kathy. His life was not without challenge. You live large, you push limits, you'll get scars and bruises. And yet he never allowed himself on the bench, never allowed himself to be on the injured list of life He dodged the harpoons all his life, not deliberately because nothing, I mean nothing, could get or take him down or put him down until this week when his heart finally did after 84 years of its beating, beating hard, beating to rhythms we all wanted to dance to if we could only keep up with him. Tolstoy was not the first to point out the singularity of happiness. Before him, Aristotle did too, again, the Greek wisdom and culture suffusing the house that Charlie built. Aristotle put put it in his Nicomachean Ethics that, quote, men are good in but one way. And that way was to follow the mean, what he called the mean, to choose between the extremes in life. But as, as I describe this man of great love in life and loving and living, one might think what I am describing is one who lived in the extremes. That's not true. It isn't. For Charlie knew something. He knew what sadness was, and he knew there was too much of it and that too many people lived with it. His example, his life, was to show that happiness was a virtue and should be the mean, the default, not an extreme. Per Aristotle, quote, if any action is well performed, it is performed in accord with the appropriate excellence. If this is the case, then happiness turns out to be an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. If it constitutes the entirety of your life and not simply chance periods here and there, close quote. Charlie created as the Potter famili- f- Familius, literally the happiest house I knew or knew of. Charlie would not like that I ended that last sentence with a proposition, but he'd appreciate that I used the word literally accurately. In thinking on Charlie's life, I think of the consummate teacher, not just of the great works from and in the English language of literature that he taught, but in, in his example of life. That's why I, having never ever been on the Central High campus, consider Charlie one of my great teachers, as well as a surrogate dad. His classroom must have been just a ton of fun. Life is a banquet, and most poor fools are starving to death, we learned from the play Auntie Mame. Charlie understood that intuitively, and he was the most full man I knew. As such a man, such a teacher, such a father, such a husband, I think of a line from one of my favorite education experts, one Dr. Leo Buscaglia, who could have been describing Charlie when he wrote, It's not enough to have lived. We should be determined to live for something. May I suggest that it be creating joy for others, sharing what we have for the betterment of person kind, bringing hope to the lost and love to the lonely, close quote. He didn't need to suggest that to Charlie. He would have been describing Charlie. Charlie, may may you now rest in peace. Try and tell God a joke, and if he doesn't get it, give him your trademark, self-effacing growl, grunt, end of a joke, coda of a grumble that you did so uniquely. You made us all smile here with that. You'll make God smile above. Thank you for your concert, Charlie. You played it beautifully and you played it with kindness, and you played it with joy and happiness. Kathy, Dimitri, Thano, thank you for sharing him with us as we today share with you our grief and his passage. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, brought to you live from the Guns Etc Studios. Delighted to uh, have them as a sponsor. It's a great outfit. Um, it's where I've gotten my equipment from. I will tell you uh, that this um, this is an interesting. It's an interesting political moment we're in. Bill, did I send you I don't remember, did I send you Jen Socky's Yes. Okay, thank you. I know I'm good at misdirection, aren't I? You hear some of these other radio hosts, it's pretty funny. You listen to these other hosts and they say cut ninety seven. I remember when I was doing the Bill Bennett show Bill and I weren't big on audio because, uh, well, first of all, we we had to get up before God to do the show at 6 a.m. Eastern. So, you know, we're in the studio at 4 a.m. doing everything we can to get ready for the 6 a.m. broadcast. And, you know, cutting audio just – it wasn't our priority. Plus, you know, we're philosophers and, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we didn't and and yet you know audio elements do obviously help and we were driving um we were driving to lunch lunch one day listening to the listening listening to the rush I'll I'll get my speech right here in a moment we were listen, listening to the rush Limbaugh show I don't know why I can't do that listening to the rush Limbaugh show one day we we're driving to lunch and we heard rush shout out uh, cut 27 and Bill and I looked at each other. We've never gotten to ten. We, we twenty. So I heard someone calling out for cut ninety-seven today on one of the Salem shows. So Bill's very good. He can manage my four or five once in a while, even if I give him misdirection. So sorry about that. I want you. This was Jen Socky trying to do some cleanup as she has been doing. This has been probably her toughest week, and I shed no tears and have no sympathy for her. Because they have put her out there as if what the Biden administration has is a messaging problem. It's not a messaging problem. It's a merits problem. It's a merits problem. I don't care how well you wrap. Well, you, you know where I'm going. So she has been trying to do cleanup not on aisle six or aisle seven but on all the aisles, on aisles one through ten because he's practically burned the store down. Joe Biden has – And uh, with basically two speeches uh, or two public speaking events, one was last week's speech in Georgia, followed up by uh, the press conference he held earlier this week. Uh, That is all attendant to lower and lower polling numbers. His low poll numbers came out before. His press conference. You would have thought he would have gotten the message. They don't take these messages. They don't take the messages. I want you to listen to Jen Psaki talking to the ladies over on The View today. This is how she pitched it. Listen to this.
2: So where do you see a path forward at this point? Well, the path forward is we have to keep fighting. Uh, Look, I think this week has been frustrating, devastating, angering, all of those things. And everybody who's been fighting for this, there's so many activists across the country who have been so central to getting to this point. I mean, just a year ago, there were more people who were opposed to filibuster changes in the Senate. So we've made some progress on that front, but we've got to stay at it. So my advice to everyone out there who's frustrated, sad, angry, pissed off, feel those emotions, Go to kickboxing class, have a margarita, do whatever you need to do this weekend and then wake up on Monday morning. we got to keep fighting.
1: OK, there you go. That's the charge. They don't see a problem. They think go have a margarita and get back up and do it again and do it better and harder next week. When she talks about this week being angering and frustrating, she's not talking about the American people. She's talking about the White House staff and her friends in the Democratic Party. It's been angering and frustrating to them because they have a leader who is incompetent and worse. That's the problem. And her message is have a mar- margarita, get some rest and hit it harder next week. They're not taking any messages. They're not getting taking any feedback. They're thinking they just need to double down. And by the way, since when is this about the activists in the party? Is he the president of the United States or the president of the Bernie bros and the activists who feel anger and frustration and other words, Maybe I shouldn't say them that she said. Right. Yeah, Bill. <laughs> OK, thank you. Bill's giving me some serious direction right now, not, not misdirection. Right. Who's the anger and the frustration that she cares about? She said it. the activists, go home, get some rest, have a margarita and hit it harder next week. They think this is a messaging problem and they are ready to go again and harder and harder at it. The whole problem here was that Joe Biden at the top of his press conference earlier this week said that he was going to go out to the rest of the country and tour and talk more, not listen more, talk more, sell the agenda more. It's as if he doesn't think we're getting it. It's as if he doesn't think when we see empty shelves, when we see. Higher prices. When we see a failure to address covid the way he promised us he would, when we see the duplicity of what he said about Trump versus vis-a-vis covid versus what he said and done vis-a-vis covid, they think it's that not enough people are listening to them. Oh, we're listening and we're seeing those results. And I'll pose the question again, question I wish one reporter would ask. Just name one thing on public policy, one thing that touches Americans' lives. That Joe Biden has made better. His natural response was, well, if you would pass my build back better plan, maybe we would do it. The problem with that is twofold, one philosophical, one chronological. Does that mean that a president is just irrelevant without one piece of legislation and that everything went to happen? He was given, who was the guest who said here yesterday, maybe John or someone, he was given a turnkey country when he walked in. He was given a year of experience with covid. He was given the vaccines. He took them before he was inaugurated. He was given all of that, all of that. And he said he wasn't going to shut the country down. He was going to shut covid down. He said if you're responsible for two hundred and twenty thousand deaths, you're not qualified to be president. He has now overcome the number of deaths on his watch than Donald Trump again with a year's experience. So it was no longer novel. And the vaccines and the vaccines. That's that's the philosophical and chronological point at the same time. Build back better. Let me add the philosophical point to it. What does build back better mean? And why is that a better slogan than make America great again? Do you remember how many Democrats said make America great again is a dog whistle to the to the to the segregationist times of the 50s? The segregationist times are always on their mind. Biden grew up. Too close to it. Too close and too cozy with it. He used to brag about his segregationist senator friends like Senator Eastland. He used to brag about his buddy ship with Byrd. And name me a president who is ever, ever. I don't even think John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson used the word, the name Bull Connor. I don't think. I don't think. And he brought that all back last week i'm going to talk to you about how dangerous this is when we come right back 602-508-0960 seth Leapson, live from the guns etc studios we'll be right back i'll say a little more about that man um In just a little bit, I wanted to stay on Joe Biden for just a moment. Uh, When John McCain passed, Joe Biden's friendship with John McCain was a very touted thing and very well-known thing. When they were both uh, alive together, they were good friends. And Joe Biden came to Arizona to speak at one of John McCain's funerals. And it was an appeal to... A politics of non-divisiveness, of bipartisanship, of not questioning motives, of not burning the house down. I sat there watching it. I remember watching it on TV, and I thought, this is the man who said, Mitt Rom- who said to a black audience Mitt Romney was going to put them all in chains if he were elected. This from that man. Just to remind you of the sales job Joe Biden did on himself. This is him from McCain's funeral.
2: John, next to his seat, or he'd come over on the Democratic side and sit next to me. No, I'm not joking. Because we'd sit there and we'd talk to each other. And I can remember the day when I came out to see John, we, were, we were reminisced about it. It was in '96. And we were about to adjourn for what we call the caucuses. There's a luncheon once a week that all the Democratic senators have lunch together and all the Republican senators. And we both went into our caucus, and coincidentally, we were approached by our caucus leaders with the same thing. It was raised as a discussion Joe, it doesn't look good you sit next to John all the time on there. <laughs> Swear to God. Same thing was said to John in your caucus. That's when things began to change for the worse in America, in the Senate. That's when it changed. What happened was, at those times, it was always appropriate to challenge another senator's judgment, but never appropriate to challenge their motive. When you challenge their motive, it's impossible to get to go if I say you're doing this because you're being paid off, if I say you're doing this because you're not a good Christian, if I say you're doing this because you're this, that, or other thing, it's impossible to reach consensus. Think about it in your personal lives. But all we do today is attack the oppositions of both parties, their motives, not the substance of their argument.
1: That was Joe Biden at McCain's funeral. Can you give me Joe Biden in Georgia last week?
2: Will you stand against voter suppression? Yes or no? That's the question they will answer. Will you stand against election subversion? Yes or no? Will you stand for democracy? Yes or no? There's one thing every senator, every American should remember. History has never been kind to those who've sided with voter suppression over voters' rights. And it be even be less kind for those who side with election subversion. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be in the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be in the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis?
1: But of course, we wouldn't want to question someone else's motives. You don't want to think of your opponent as your enemy, even though you denounce an entire party as not standing for democracy, but standing with the suppression and the subversion of the right to vote with Bull Connor, Jefferson Davis, and George Wallace. Do we have time to play what he said at the inaugural? No, we'll do it when we come back. We'll do it when we come back. I understand from reading everything I've read from the Never Trumpers and the Washington Post and the New York Times— I understand how they enjoyed and delighted in going after Donald Trump's business successes and failures. And often they would call him a fraud and worse. Boy, I'll tell you, whatever he did in his businesses, whatever he did in his businesses, I'm showing you what fraud is. I'm showing you what it is right now. It's a telling thing about the Democrats when things aren't going their way and their policies fail where they go. Their first go-to is either to go after police or divide us by race. Think of the police situation for a minute. Law enforcement. Think about uh, what they said when, um, and what they did when it was uh, shown that uh, there, was a, uh, there were uh, customs of border patrol on horses. Trying to uh, push back against the incursion on our southern border. They cried, cowboys with whips. There were no cowboys and there were no whips and when things aren't going their way on build back better they decide to go back to Nancy Pelosi's favorite thing hr what was used to be known as hr 1 the federalization of our elections the deletion of reforms such as voter id and the banning of ballot harvesting which i can't think of why anyone would be against unless they supported voter fraud and they go racial. Give me a little from Joe Biden's inaugural if you will, his inaugural speech.
2: I promise you I get it. But the answer is not to turn inward, to retreat into competing factions, distrusting those who don't look like look like you or worship the way you do or don't get their news from the same sources you do. We must end this uncivil war the pits red against blue rural versus urban or, or rural versus urban conservative versus liberal we can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts if we show a little tolerance and humility and if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes as my mom would say just for a moment stand in their shoes He
1: said he guaranteed us that he said he promised us that do me Georgia again.
2: Will you stand against voter suppression? Yes or no. That's the question they'll answer. Will you stand against election subversion? Yes or no. Will you stand for democracy? Yes or no. There's one thing every senator, every American should remember. History has never been kind to those who've sided with voter suppression over voters' rights. And it will be even be less kind for those who side with election subversion. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be the on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be in the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis?
1: What was it he promised us again? No divisiveness, not questioning of people's motives. Stand in the other guy's shoes. Don't criticize people based on where they get their news. Don't treat your opponent as your enemy. No. Just... Question their commitment to democracy, and let the rest of the world know that the Republican Party stands for voter suppression, voter subversion, and is on the side of George Wallace and Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis. When he was asked about this at his press conference, he denied he said he denied saying that he was calling Republicans George Wallace and Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis. Who was he calling that then? Was he calling Joe Manchin that? Was he calling Kristen Cinema that? You know, he likes to invoke his friend and it's perfectly fine that he does John Lewis. It's interesting to me, they don't often say Congressman John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, for you would think from a Republican state full of George Wallace's and Bull Connors and Jefferson Davis's, you could never elect a Congressman John Lewis or vote for him or for that matter, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. You would think. You would think. This isn't bad ideology and bad rhetoric. It's demagoguery. Demagoguery. And yeah, sorry. If you're going to attempt a massive federal takeover of what the Constitution provides to the states in running their own elections for the first time, so monumentally in the history of this country, maybe we go through it a little more slowly. Maybe we just take a beat and make sure this is what we want to do because it's being sold to us as the only way to guarantee fair and secure elections, which by implication must mean that elections until now have not been but... wait. If you're a Republican and question the fairness and the integrity of an election, you are guilty of engaging in a big lie. Wall Street Journal opines today that one piece of President Biden's news conference that deserves more scrutiny is his positively is his positively Trumpian refusal to say that the 2022 elections will be legitimate. The White House is now trying to walk this back. But if Mr. Biden is changing his mind, he should say so himself. In tweets on Thursday, Press Secretary Jen Psaki insisted Mr. Biden, quote, was not casting doubt on the legitimacy of the 2022 election. Close quote. Rather, he was explaining that the results would be illegitimate if states do what the former president <laughs> asked them to do after the 2020 election, toss out ballots and overturn results. Who was talking about tossing out ballots? Is that the truth? Roll the tape. Question. From the press conference, speaking of voter rights legislation, if this isn't passed, do you still believe the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate? Answer, Mr. Biden, quote, well, it all depends on whether or not we're able to make the case to the American people that some of this is being set up to try to alter the outcome of the election. Close quote. Asked a second time later in the news conference, he added, quote, the prospect of being illegitimate is in direct proportion to us not being able to get these reforms passed. Got it? Close quote. You could not be more clear. The prospect of being illegitimate is in direct proportion to us not being able to get these reforms passed. Used to be Republicans um, were questioning whether their vote would count anymore. Democrats, uh message to you. These reforms weren't passed and didn't get passed. The election will be illegitimate. You don't need to show up and vote. No need. The ardency and the uh, immovability and the id's fix... Of the left. You may remember earlier this week um, the story that Sonia. So- we didn't do it on this show because it didn't sound right to me, and, and I'm kind of glad that my meter was right on this. There was a story circulating that uh, Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor, Sonia Sotomayor uh, would not sit next, it would not appear in person for Supreme Court oral arguments because. Fellow Justice Neil Gorsuch wouldn't wear a mask and that she would only hear oral argument argument by Zoom. Three Supreme Court justices, Sonia Sotomayor herself, Neil Gorsuch himself and the chief justice of the Supreme Court speaking as the chief justice of the Supreme Court, all said none of it is true. The story is False. False. Sotomayor and Gorsuch released a joint statement, quote, reporting that Justices Sotomayor asked Justice Gorsuch to wear a mask surprised us. It is false. We may sometimes disagree about the law. We are warm colleagues and friends. Chief Justice Roberts wrote, quote, I never requested Justice Gorsuch or any such justice to wear a mask on the bench. The story that NPR ran said that he had been Gorsuch repeatedly asked to wear a mask by fellow justices. And that's why Sotomayor was not showing up. The story came from National Public Radio, NPR. That's who originated the story, and then it went out from there. Centrifugally, centrifugally, centrifugally. NPR stands by its reporting. The people involved deny it. NPR not releasing its source (laughs) stands by it. They put out this statement. What is incontrovertible is that all the justices have at once started wearing masks except Gorsuch. Meanwhile, Sotomayor has stayed out of the courtroom. Instead, she has participated remotely in the court's arguments in the justices' weekly conference where they discuss the cases and vote on them. The pattern continued Wednesday as the court heard arguments in a campaign finance case brought by Senator Ted Cruz, John Hinderocker writes, note the facts NPR cites in standing by its reporting do not in any way support the reporting. NPR has apparently abandoned the assertion that Neil Gorsuch or any of the justices were asked to wear masks. It also doesn't pretend to support the claim that Sotomayor requested such an order or that she is working remotely because Gorsuch doesn't wear a mask. In other words, NPR stands by its reporting without defending a single fact that it falsely asserted. To NPR, the facts are simply irrelevant. Like the New York Times, the Washington Post and others – It's just another mouthpiece for the left and will shamelessly assert falsehoods if they support the left's narratives. How many lies were we told that Donald Trump uttered? Not as many as the commercial press.